When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The parties are divided in terms of the effect that the stimulus is going to have. This inflation debate has really been heating up the effect of what the Biden administration is spending on political capital. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. A group of centrists are the key senators to watch. Joe Biden, his number one focus in addition to the COVID health crisis is jobs. I don't think we have red roads and blue roads, and that's the way we're looking at this. Bloomberg Sound On. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Time to talk about China, plus the latest on infrastructure. A lot to get through is the fallout from President Biden's first press conference continues to reverberate throughout the nation's capital. Congressman Brendan Boyle is going to join us, as well as the all star policy panel, Rick and Jeannie. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Rick. Uh, Davis, as well as Jeannie Sean Zeno are with me. They are the Bloomberg Politics contributors. We begin tonight with one of the big stories that is driving political chatter as we head into the weekend. The arrest of a black Georgia state lawmaker who was seeking entry to Governor Brian Kemp's closed-door signing of a sweeping election law is placing sharper scrutiny on Republican-led state houses' pursuit of voting restrictions. State Representative Park Cannon, that's the name, Park Cannon, he is a Democrat, was released from jail early Friday after she was handcuffed and arrested by two white Georgia State Patrol officers as supporters demanded to know what law she violated. Now, earlier today, President Joe Biden was asked about this on his way home to Delaware for the weekend. He stopped before boarding Marine One to talk to White House reporters. Take a listen to the sound on this with regards to the developing story in Georgia. You can't provide water for people about to vote. Give me a break. You don't need anything else to know that this is nothing but punitive designed to keep people from voting. Meanwhile, Governor Brian Kemp, he was also asked about this as he signed a nearly 100-page bill of sweeping election reforms earlier yesterday, just hours after it passed on a party-line vote in the state Senate. Democrats and civil rights advocates have blasted the bill. They've called it voter suppression. And this new law is going to require voters to present a state ID for mail-in ballots, allow state officials to suspend local election superintendents, and make it a crime for someone who is not an election worker to give food or beverages to those waiting in lines and ban 
portable polling facilities. Take a listen to Governor Kemp. According to them, if you support voter ID for absentee ballots, you're a racist. According to them, if you believe in protecting the security and sanctity of the ballot box, you're a, quote, Jim Crow in a suit and tie. Congressman Brendan Boyle is with us. He is a Democrat from Pennsylvania's second congressional district outside of Philadelphia, parts of Philadelphia as well. Congressman, I know you and your colleagues are talking a lot about uh, this story in particular. Do you anticipate any significant developments in Congress as from a federal level, or is this simply, are your hands tied and there's not much you can do because so much of it happens at the states? Well, Kevin, it's great to be back uh, with you again. Uh, this shows exactly why both H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act are, are both necessary. So if you had, for example, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which passed the House and is now sitting in front of the Senate, if that were law, that federal law would knock out the Georgia law as well as several hundred similar laws that have been uh, introduced in the various state legislatures, all by Republicans attempting to restrict the right to vote. So, yes, there is something we can do at the federal level. The House has already moved legislation on that, and then hopefully uh, the Senate will soon as well. Do you anticipate that President Biden's declaration yesterday of moving towards some type of filibuster reform could make those policy objectives easier for you, or do you think that ultimately the filibuster will not be dismantled in the Senate? First, just for interest of full disclosure, I have for years um, long believed that the filibuster is actually unconstitutional. The filibuster, as it's been practiced the last several decades, where it's basically automatically applied to every piece of legislation requiring a supermajority vote, it's completely contrary to what our founders in Philadelphia envisioned. They had that in the Articles of Confederation. They got rid of it because it was such a failure. I love so, that you just gave Philadelphia a shot. I, I see what you did there, and I respect it as a Delco native. And, you know, it's, uh, e- it's either going to go back, for me, I'm either going to work it in on the founding of the nation or the <laughs> Eagles, but one way or the other. Both. Why, why getting, can't you do it both? Why not I'm getting the both? Philly plug-in, especially only a few days after National Cheesesteak Day. But, I know! I know! <laughs> oh, we're already off topic. Go which, ahead, which, which my office did recognize, but anyway. Listen, you um, could give a filibuster if you were in the Senate just simply by reading the ingredients of Tony Luke's. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, I, um, I will say, so for me, I'm coming from a pretty obvious perspective. I completely oppose the filibuster. And by the way, I would be willing to live under those same rules if, sure enough, four years from now, there's a Republican Senate, Republican House, Republican uh, in the White House. That's fair. I do not believe there should be a filibuster. Now, practically speaking, given where Joe Manchin is, given where my former colleague uh, Kristen Sinema is, given where I suspect a few other Democratic senators are as well, but they haven't been as public about it, it does appear that perhaps a way to achieve my objective, yet at the same time maintain some semblance of the filibuster, is through a few different reforms that would basically turn it back to the way it was for most of the 20th century, where you still had the filibuster, but you know, it was only invoked an average of once a year for most of the 20th century. Again, the real problem with this is really a relatively recent problem in American history. Representative Boyle, I know Kevin likes when you raise Philly. I like when you raise the Articles of Confederation. So thank you very much. Um, I wanted to ask you, in the context of the voting issue we're seeing in Georgia, 
in reading this, you know, brings me back to uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dissent in the Shelby County case, which really set this firestorm off in 2013. And, you know, just looking a little bit beyond congressional legislation, if we can just imagine H.R. 1, the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, if we can imagine they somehow miraculously get passed, is what are you think the chances are that they get stopped in this judiciary that has really turned, you know, very much um, over the last four years to the right. And given that, do you think that Congress needs to consider increasing the size of the Supreme Court or packing the court, which was the other alternative that's been raised? Yeah, you know, you raise a really important topic. I actually did an op-ed on this quite a while ago on how over the last generation, um, the Supreme Court has morphed into what one author once called it and wrote a book about it called the most dangerous branch. And so as partisanship has paralyzed the legislative branch, we have seen the judicial branch, especially the Supreme Court, usurp powers. Now, some of those decisions, frankly, people like me on the left have cheered. Some of them, people on the right have have cheered. The reality is, though, too often unelected folks who sit on the bench are deciding things that should more properly be decided by the people through their elected representatives. So I actually think this is a problem that goes beyond just the issue of whether or not you have nine or 13 members of of the Supreme Court. I had noticed talk about that, by the way, has really dropped from where we were, you know, maybe six months ago. But again, though, I, I think the problem is actually much deeper in that we need legislatively to rein in the unchecked power of the judiciary. Congressman, this is uh, Rick. Uh, I, I, I want to press you a little bit on this because I think that one of the things that, uh, as a Republican, I've always thought states uh, managing their own elections was the strength of our of our country, right? Is that uh, uh, the, the, the systems closest to the voters would always have the sensitivity and, and the understanding, and that if there were disputes, like there has been today in Georgia, that yeah. they could be administered through the state court system, which is typically where you find the, uh, the, the activity around uh, election law. And, and obviously, uh, there's a wave going on around the country, right? There are other, over 260 of these bills have been presented nationwide, most of them thrown out. But in other states like Iowa and Texas, like Georgia, you know, they've already passed some of these kinds of reform measures. But uh, isn't this really not about a federal remedy for this, but to see where the politics lies at the state level and let the state courts which aren't as known to legislate from the bench as the, as the Supreme Court is. Yeah, you know, I, I respect and understand that, that viewpoint, but let's not forget that the Constitution explicitly says and gives the power to Congress to regulate federal elections. I mean, a, a big reason why throughout the nation we have the same election day, the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, dates back to a federal law from the middle of the 19th century. Before then, you actually had different election days. Uh, it would be a different day depending on the state. So it's pretty clear explicitly in the Constitution that Congress has the right, indeed the responsibility, to set certain standards for federal races. Uh, and I, I think that what we're seeing now in state legislature after state legislature with, um, with these bills that have been introduced, mostly coming after the big lie was, was peddled by the former president, That, to me, calls out for one 
federal law setting a national standard. Congressman Brendan Boyle is with us. He is a Democrat representing Pennsylvania's 2nd Congressional District. He is also the founder and co-chair of the Blue Collar Caucus, which advocates for working families by addressing wage stagnation, job insecurity, and the future of work. That's where I want to pivot this conversation to, the future of work. Because, you know, yesterday at that press conference, I was really surprised by this, that there wasn't a lot asked about the American middle class. And 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 I, I, here we are talking about infrastructure in a couple of months from now and whether or not taxes should be increased to pay for it. I had you on the program recently to discuss your support of raising taxes on the wealthy as a means to fund some some various programs. But what should be done, Congressman Boyle, to, to help folks so that the future of work, whether it's due to automation or due to a rerouted trade routes uh, or even mass space exploration that jobs and manufacturing jobs can come uh, to all parts of the country and especially to parts of the country like similar to your district. Yeah, Kevin, you know, I've been working on this issue now uh, for the last four and a half years through the the caucus that I helped co-found. And we've had brought in a number of folks from the private sector talking about this issue, talking about the future of the work, of future work, how we deal with the challenge that there are frankly just fewer opportunities, fewer jobs for less pay for those workers like my parents who had a high school education than there were 30 years ago and 50 years ago, and the profound negative effect that has had in our society. And what I've concluded is there are tangible things we can do, but man, it is, um, it, it is complicated and it is not easy. It is not just going to be solved candidly through one piece of legislation. I think apprenticeships uh, actually is a big part of the solution. Uh, We have a number of automakers here in the U.S., for example, who have created their own apprenticeship programs that people can go into right after high school. They don't accumulate debt. They're immediately making money. They get great training. We've been looking into ways how we can take that model that, that we have now and that automakers have and how we can expand that to certain back office uh, functions that people are typically now going to college for, how we can uh, marry private industry with community colleges, so that way they're, they're more inclined to essentially be job training for jobs that already exist and are likely to exist in the future. But I'm the first one who will tell you, as someone who spent a lot of time in this area, it, it is not an easy problem to solve, and it's not just a problem for the United States. This is a problem throughout the West. And I would offer part of the reason why we're in a democracy recession worldwide right now is exactly because of this, because it has created a working class angst throughout the Western world. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. 
Yep. One of the things I wanted to ask you on this point, as you talk about the future of work, I was struck yesterday by President Biden talking so explicitly about this fight that looms between autocracy and democracy. And as we look over at China and Xi Jinping's investment and the Communist Party's investment, which is enormous in retaining their supply chain or bringing their supply chain home, what do you think can be done vis-a-vis -vis whether it's the bill, whether it's you know, Joe Biden's infrastructure bill or vis-a-vis -vis Congress to address what looks to be an increasingly uh, domestic uh, Chinese supply chain over there and the impact that can have on the future of work in the United States? China has also been making huge in, uh, investments through Belt and Road Initiative, attempting to gain influence and power throughout Asia and Africa, and that is also a real threat to the United States, only in, in a different way. Um, you know, I, this is obviously a time of intense partisanship uh, in, in the United States, maybe the most we've had since the 1850s. But the good news is, if there is one issue that does tend to unite the two parties right now, it really is China. The need to get tough on them, the need to recognize that they are, perhaps they're not a communist expansionist regime the way the Soviet Union was, but they are an autocratic regime. They do not share our values. And for too long, frankly, I think uh, the United States was naive and asleep at the wheel, like throughout the 90s and the early 2000s, thinking that because China was opening up economically that democracy would su suddenly flourish. That has not panned out at all. In fact, what has happened, you've had a multi-billion dollar industry like the NBA yep. be cowered into being silent. Yep. Because Preach. they were too afraid to annoy a, a, a customer base of 1.3 billion. So actually, the evidence is it's worth the well, other. Well, I have to jump in here. So should the yeah. United States pull out of the Olympics, uh, or, or or should you know you just raise the NBA? So let me ask you that point blank: Should the U.S. pull out of the Olympics? Should the U.S. pull out of the well? The Olympics are, are supposed to be in in Japan. Um, no, the Beijing game. The Beijing games oh, in 2022. Oh, right on the winter side. Mm -hmm. um, no, I, I have to say, I mean, uh, while I you know, wasn't old enough to, to remember it, uh, in 1980, when President Carter um, pulled out of, of the Moscow Olympics because of the in Russian inva uh, invasion of Afghanistan, I don't think that achieved anything other than messing up the careers of our Olympians. Um, it, it, it was a, a mistake, um, in my view. I don't think it really achieves anything. I, I would rather the two weeks of the Olympics to be a time not for politics and when we take a time out. What about this? Can I ask you a follow-up on that? What about using that time as an opportunity for Americans to highlight uh, and the athletes to highlight uh, some of the horrific human rights abuses uh, yeah. that the Communist Party... I mean, we've seen the power that athletes have domestically in our country with the NFL that they can raise about inequality in our country. Wouldn't it be great, Congressman, if, if American athletes did that in Beijing to highlight... Oh, I the horrific abuses of the of the of the of the Uyghurs at right. the hands of the Communist Party. I, I fully agree. I would love to see that. Of course, right now, frankly, if NBA players attempted to do that, would they be penalized by yep. their own teams and, and their own organization? I mean, that's the real problem. So no, rather than pulling out of the games, I would rather see that. And frankly, I'd rather go over, kick their ass, and win a lot of gold medals. <laughs> What about speaking of China, uh, President Biden uh, or President Xi Jinping of China uh, and President Biden are uh, actually going to be meeting, it looks like, virtually uh, on uh, 
April 22nd. We've got sound on this. Take a listen to what President Biden said, and then I'll get your reaction. And then I know you got to run. So, but take a listen to this. I haven't yet, but they know they're invited. But I haven't invited. I haven't spoken to either one of them yet individually. I just got off the phone speaking with the British Prime Minister, and yesterday I spoke with all the members of the EU. So, uh, but I haven't spoken to those two. That wasn't a chainsaw. It was a helicopter. <laughs> I have no. Yeah. I, that was anyway. That was Marine One going back and forth. But they might be talking on Earth Day. Go ahead, Congressman. The uh, well, I, I could barely hear what he said. So instead, they I'll, might I'll, talk. Neither could I. Go ahead. Instead, I will throw in a quick factoid. The person who started that and started the helicopters running so he wouldn't have to ask <laughs> questions was Ronald Reagan. It was a oh great Reagan gosh. trick. <laughs> that he did, and he would put his hand over his ear and say, I'm sorry, Sam, I can't hear you because the helicopter is running. <laughs> and so it's nice to see that tradition living. It's like the cell later. phone trick. Go ahead. <laughs> when, so, when lawmakers in Congress say, oh, I'm on the cell phone, I can't talk to a reporter. But go ahead, Congressman. You've never yeah, pulled that trick on me. That's the modern day equivalent, although I don't do that. Um, but no, look, I, I will also, I will add, um, I was very proud of the way Tony Blinken uh, who I know, um, handled the Chinese at their first summit in, in Alaska when the Chinese officials, again, cheated, as they always do, and instead of giving a, a, a two-minute opening statement, gave a 20-minute uh, screed about the supposed faults of the United States. He pushed back on that, insisted the media stayed in the room and pushed back hard. We need to see more of that from the United States um, because that's the only thing this Chinese regime uh, understands and respects. All right, Congressman Brendan Boyle, Democrat from Pennsylvania's 2nd Congressional District, thank you so much for spending time with us on a Friday. That's Congressman Brendan Boyle of Philly. Anytime. Uh, of, of Philly. Rick and Jeannie. Jeannie, I know you... I, I know, I, your your analysis. Well, my first my first learning here is this cell phone trick that you just taught me, oh, Kevin. Yeah. So th- thank you very Politicians much. Politicians <laughs> and Paris Hilton. That's that, the one thing they have. Oh in my gosh! Go uh, no with one the paparazzi. Yeah, one thing I I wanted to follow up on, um, and maybe you know do it at another time. We talk to him is you know we hear a lot, or I hear a lot, and I'm sure you do about bipartisan agreement on at vis a vis China and this need to get tough on China. And what you know, I'm still not clear on from a legislative legislative perspective, what that exactly means, what we should be looking for in the president's approach to China and and what sort of that get tough on China means, whether it's about the supply chain jobs, you know, all of these different capacities. So uh, that's one thing I would like to hear more about as we go forward on this. Yeah, I think from my reporting, what I can gather is that when it comes to the defense authorizations and and, and other various components of, of, of trying to encourage there to be uh, coordination amongst the United States and, and Europe, that that, that that would be facilitated. But, Rick, I think Jeannie makes a great point there. It's one thing to say, you know, the same talking points, but it's an entirely different to, to come at this from a, a policy agenda. Yeah, I think that uh, absolutely there is going to be, you can imagine, uh, the Biden administration rolling out various initiatives to try and tame the Chinese beast. But I would say, too, there is a very there's a lot of pressure on corporate America today. You were talking with the congressman about the situation in China where they are basically threatening U.S. companies uh, in order to keep them from getting into what they call internal Chinese business, and whether it's Nike or the NBA or any number of these. 
And, and I think the corporate America, especially with the rise of ESG and this whole governance issue of you're doing business with people who are committing genocide, you know, who have slave labor. I mean, how do you satisfy your ESG requirements if you're manufacturing your products in China right now, especially in a region that might be uh, occupied by, uh, you know, Uyghur concentration camps? So I think that corporate America has something to say in this debate in addition to the Biden administration and potential sanctions and other uh, government actions that can take place. Rick, let me follow up on that because uh, there's a, a sports industry publication called Sportico that recently launched, and, and they cover the business side of sports. But I've been really struck that, that this particular issue has not been raised. But when you look at all of the capital and access to capital that the various leagues and athletes and uh, retailers have, uh, especially around the NBA, that Congressman Boy, I had no idea he was going to bring that up, Rick. Uh, and then you look at what's coming in 2022. Do you do you sense from your conversations with the business community that that is when the U.S. and allies really could put the pressure on the human rights abuses and really show the world uh, what is happening in in the Xinjiang province? Absolutely. I thought it was a, a brilliant suggestion to actually have our athletes uh, be able to make a statement. Uh, China is more worried about its dis- this, its domestic image than it is its image abroad. They really don't care what we think about them, mm-hmm. but they are dependent on a billion and a half people sort of going along with the crime, right? And, and yeah. so the minute you start stirring the pot internally in China, that's much more difficult for them to deal with than uh, us attacking them or withdrawing from the Olympics or something like that. And, and you've seen that in the way that they've been conducting themselves in the latest initiatives with the Biden administration. And I, and I thought that's why Kristen Welkner's question yesterday about access and transparency here in the United States for the horrible situation and the crisis happening at the U.S.-Mexico border was so incredibly uh, important. And I thought it was a really brilliant question that Kristen asked. All right, I'm Kevin Cerulli with the All-Star Policy Panel, Rick and Jeannie. Much more coming up next. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. My name is Kevin Cerilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by the all-star policy team, Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno. I was struck by this. My mom called me today. I was talking to her. I said, what did you think of the press conference? And she said, uh, how come they didn't ask about the, the coronavirus? So I, I feel like we should, we should provide an update on the coronavirus, because during today's virtual briefing from the White House COVID-19 response team, Dr. Fauci was asked about new cases amongst people who have gotten the vaccine shots. This is a this is a thing that that's been spreading on social media and whatnot. And I, I think it's important to play this because, uh, you know, well, millions of Americans have gotten their their vaccinations. Here's the sound on the shots from Dr. Fauci. Take a listen. With regard to the breakthrough cases of people who have been vaccinated and ultimately have gotten infection, obviously, this is something that we take seriously and follow closely you will see breakthrough infections in any vaccination when you're vaccinating literally tens and tens and tens 
of millions of people. Uh, Jeannie, I want to start with you here because we compared and contrasted the American rollout that took two administrations and and breakthroughs in science and whatnot um, to what happened in Europe. And, And you almost get the sense here from Dr. Fauci that they are doing everything in their power to not have an AstraZeneca situation domestically in the United States. They are. And and I think um, first I was struck by the same thing your mother said, which was despite (laughs) despite the you know, the president making those remarks and promising to get 200 million vaccinations in 100 days, which is, you know, however much we decry what our government does. That is absolutely, you know, amazing that both administrations have have gotten us to that point. Um, There were no questions to follow up on that. And I do think that, you know, we are the United United States government is trying hard not to have a situation like that in the United States. I also think we need to be cognizant that the difficulties in the EU pertain an awful lot to the difficulties of of pleasing all of the member states. If you compare what's happened in the EU rollout to what's happened in England, England has done much better. So a part of this, it has to do with the structure of the EU and how difficult it is for a confederation to roll something out when they have to please so many member parts. So that, I think, is a story as to why, just to raise what Representative Boyle says, we no longer have a confederation because we might be in a similar situation. Rick? Yeah, I think that, uh, um, you know, everyone is pretty much moving into the new phase of COVID, right? I mean, like part of the news we've received is the updates on the the, the vaccine program. 26% of America has been at least given one shot. Um, uh, 14% have gotten both. That's, that's an amazing speed with which the, uh, since the change in administration, the Biden administration has been able to accomplish. And, 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 and the key piece of, I thought, the success of the Biden administration in the first 100 days was the announcement that he was going to double the amount of vaccine distributed to 200 million uh, shots in arms by his first 100 days. So I, I do think it's turning out to be one of those things that um, is going to uh, be a great success story for uh, Joe Biden. Uh, first 100 days, 200 million shots. That's really quite amazing. And uh, especially considering it, the kind of slow rollout that occurred at the end of last year, you know, during the election. So I, I think that that's a, an important contrast. We, we are now in the, the top tier of countries that are that are uh, handling this. Uh, you contrast that with where we were six months ago, where we we actually were the worst country in Western civilization uh, to uh, to be handling uh, the covid problem. And, and so that contrast, I think, even within the United States has been stark. And and Rick and Kevin, I don't know if you were struck by this, but not only was I struck like your mother, Kevin, by the, you know, absence of, you know, any questions about covid after, <clears throat> to Rick's point, this, you know, amazing 200 million vaccination uh, number. But the fact that we are hearing now that the president is not continuing to enjoy as high approval ratings as he was in part they are starting to erode because of what's happening at the border and as we know watching the press conference yesterday 
all of the questions or the vast majority were on the border and on the filibuster. The vast majority. The vast majority. So, you know, as Rick is saying that, yes, we, you know, the president should enjoy enormous acclaim and high approval numbers for COVID. And I think he does. But overall, his numbers starting to dip a little bit as this crisis emerges. And I wasn't convinced by his answers yesterday that that's going to change any minds on that let's, either. Let's go there. Let's let's play a little bit of what Jen Psaki said today. Uh, the day after that press conference um, about uh, immigration reform. We've got sound on this because she was asked about the situation of uh, granting more access to shelters for unaccompanied children at the U.S. border. Take a listen. This is not a partisan issue. This is an issue where we're talking about people's lives, children's lives, uh, and we're focused on uh, working with anyone who wants to be part of a solution to address the challenges we're facing. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best yes and no impersonation from the tech hearing. Rick, is this a partisan issue? Yes. Jeannie, <laughs> is this a partisan issue? Yes. Rick is. I mean, <laughs> when is there? Or now we can talk. But I mean, seriously, <laughs> when is there going to be an opportunity for there to be some type of comprehensive immigration reform? Well, that's the thing, right? Um, uh, what I was shocked by is that the the administration, the Biden administration, isn't using this moment to actually pre- perform a uh, uh, campaign around comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, they, there have been lots of good bills in the past, uh, and and why they don't dust one of those off and go out there with a change of message, which is, okay, the border is messy, and we're looking for help from any quarter we can get to manage it. But in the meantime, we have to solve for the problem. And the idea that, that we're going to, like, solve this problem at the border by someday having a happy life in Honduras is going to be a long way off, right? I mean, like, if that's the plan, plan on the border being a mess for years. And Rick, don't you think next time he, uh, Kevin asks us to play these tech giants, he should pay us the billions of dollars? Oh, wow. That they... <laughs> you assume a lot. Actually, there. we didn't do a very good job. We should have said, well, there's a long yeah, story we around this. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to tweet out the question that Dorsey did. Which I'm I doing was... it right now, Kevin. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> I got to say that that was, again, I mean, but if you were an astronaut and you came back down from space yesterday you would think that the only issue facing america is that is immigration which it is an incredibly important crisis but i was really struck by how that all played out yesterday at that press conference i'm kevin Cerulli. more up next this is bloomberg i'm kevin Cerulli. i'm the chief washington correspondent for bloomberg television And for Bloomberg Radio, you know, I was thinking back to a trip I took uh, during the Trump years, the Trump era, and uh, when uh, President, now former President Trump, went to Helsinki, and I remember Tom Keene was there, and we were covering it, and Vladimir Putin was there, and of course, Former President Trump was heavily criticized by Republicans, Democrats, and and, the, and even folks within his own administration for his handling of that particular summit. Um, but I'm struck by this because a headline crossed the Bloomberg terminal this afternoon that is going to be absolutely remarkable on April 22nd if all goes to fruition. And we're bringing it back old school sound on days with our segment of what's next, what's coming up next. And, and President Biden invited Vladimir Putin to attend the April 22nd climate change summit with Xi Jinping. The Bloomberg all-star policy panel, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzaner are with me for analysis. Rick, 
that's going to be a Zoom call for the history books. Yeah, this climate summit, uh, really economics and climate, but uh, being billed as the climate summit is going to have, I think, over 70 uh, heads of state. It's a big deal to the Biden administration and, and one that arguably could be a bridge, certainly for China, less so for, for Vladimir Putin, um, to finding a constructive avenue for conversations. We've been talking all week about the sort of disastrous state of affairs between the U.S. bilateral relationship with China. But on one issue, uh, uh, climate, we may actually be able to find ways to work with uh, President Xi and his administration. And I was going to say, this is exactly what the Biden administration has promised from the time they campaigned and their first 66 days in office, is that when it comes to China, they are both going to compete and cooperate. And so we see areas in which there is competition, but this is one area where they hope to cooperate. And I think the fascinating thing about what happens in this summit, you know, <laughs> which will be, you know, not, not, you know, a COVID style summit, as you mentioned, virtual, is does that cooperation come to fruition and what forum does it take? So I am really curious to see how this pans out. Well, he's going to be outlining the president Biden will be outlining the goals for reduction of carbon emissions by 2030. Um, and it, it, it's another indication of the re-entry into the Paris climate Accords. So uh, this April 22nd meeting is going to be a remarkable, remarkable uh, global event, and it will have huge geopolitical implications. Um, and, and no doubt, it, it, it's interesting, though, because as a reporter with my reporter hat on me, so much of these summits, when when you cover them, you're, you're looking for... Uh, analysis and intelligence into like the aides that are staffing the heads of state and who has the power and the body language between the world leaders. I mean, and, and to do it virtually, Rick, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you almost just, there's a part of my mind that's thinking there has to be somewhere where the United States wishes that they could have hosted this summit somewhere else with, and made a different type of, of impact. Oh, no question, Kevin. Uh, the, the atmosphere, the, the expectation management, uh, the optics of a summit like this uh, are really quite unique and wonderful. And, and we've just been through a period in the uh, President Trump's uh, presidency where he was kind of the anti-summiteer, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he liked one-on-one -on -one meetings. He didn't want a bunch of other people around. And, uh, and he liked to throw hand grenades in the middle of the summit. And, mm -hmm. and uh, Joe Biden, he'll, he'll be the boring summiteer. He'll, he'll want to hobnob with all these other guys. And he can't do it uh, so much if it's on Zoom. Uh, but outcome matters, right? And outcome still requires all these countries to start signing on to things in advance. The staff work, as you identified, the people who are sherping the summit will still do the work and ideally come out with uh, agreements uh, on important issues like climate in this case uh, that have a, a the last the test of time. And so the outcomes could still be impactful. It's just we're going to miss all the pageantry of a good summit like this. Now, I, I had sorry, I wanted to ask, did, did Rick Davis just coin a term, summiteer, like musketeer? Or is that think, an actual term, Rick Davis? I think it's a Rick Davisism. <laughs> a Rick Davisism. I love it. Two for two on a Friday. I love it. No, but I think also there's an, I was talking to a source earlier today just about, I mean, I, I got to be candid here. A lot of folks in government on both sides of the aisle, including the executive branch and in Congress, are working from home still. And... That has you think about the relationships that are not being forged and the uh, 
the 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 team building even that Rick and Jeannie you both know so well uh, from your own professional lives that are that is not occurring because of of things like this and and I'm thinking of the relationship that it takes to put on a world summit for example none of that's occurring because they're all just going to tap into a virtual summit so it's it's a we're on a tangent but it's a remarkable one Jeannie Zeno what's next for you well, I'm going to be looking at how this uh, plays out in the Suez Canal with this yes. this uh, ship mm. that is that is stuck. Um, in particular, we know that the White House is watching it carefully because they are very concerned about the impact on the energy markets. Um, and so, you know, how this comes out may have huge implications for the energy markets. And that's why, you know, Jen Psaki talked about this today at, at the briefing, um, that, that they feel that they need to get involved. So, curious curious to see how this pans out. And, you know, uh, Christine Barada was just sharing some really interesting facts course, on the yeah. IB about the Suez Canal, which I wasn't familiar with, but there's such a history there that's fascinating. And this is really, you know, it's this strange situation has really brought that all to fruition. And it's, it belongs to Egypt. It's this man-made waterway linking the Red and Mediterranean Seas. Uh, it opened back in 1869, uh, and it blo- it, the, the ship, folks, I mean, if you've seen a map, it's like that game Battleship, you know? I mean, it's literally blocking on its sideways millions of dollars worth of trade. And so now the White House has to get involved just to, to handle this 200,000-ton vessel that's stuck in a position that one industry expert, according to the Washington Post, Post compared to any, quote, enormous beached whale. End quote. Talk about a traffic jam at Kalegi. Anyway, uh, what is going on for what's next, Rick Davis? You know, I'm watching the infrastructure debate. Uh, you know, we, 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 we see a lot of activity, a lot of churning around in the administration to put together a massive infrastructure bill. We've heard expectations uh, even during the press conference getting set. Um, but I'm watching uh, Senator Manchin, right? He, the most powerful man in Washington, D.C. Yes. And, and and I think that what he said this week is worth worth repeating, and that is he's looking for a huge bill. He wants <laughs> to go big on infrastructure. He actually was quoted as calling it, I want an enormous bill. Now, I don't know, 1.9 trillion COVID relief bill just passed that Senate with his support. I'm wondering what he thinks is enormous. And two, he wants to pay for that by rolling back Trump tax cuts. And so, wow, what a mixture of important policy being done by one guy putting it on the table saying, I expect a big bill from the Biden administration and I expect to pay for it by rolling back these Trump tax cuts. Rick, I'm watching the, that. What is the global analysis of the United States uh, talk about infrastructure? How do they interpret that? You know, I think people see it as a positive. Um, you know, if you own uh, 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 bonds in U.S., uh, you want to have a strong infrastructure. You want this country to uh, prosper. The, the, the world is trading on our debt right now. And underneath that is the ability of our country to be able to continue to prosper. And our ability to prosper is going to be, to some degree, predicated on our ability to improve our infrastructure. And as you've talked in the past, Kevin, that includes broadband distribution throughout mm-hmm. the country. That includes our ability to, you know, really uh, tackle uh, climate issues with more renewable energy. Uh, it, 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 in job training for the future. I mean, all these things will make us the more competitive nation, and the world wants to see that. 
Yeah, I think that's that's incredibly, incredibly important. All right. Uh, uh, this month is uh, Women's History Month, and March is Women's History Month, and Bloomberg Radio is looking back at some of those who have played a vital role in American history. And here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in women's history in 1974, Gora Devi organizes women to save the forest near her village in India. Devi came from a community of pastoralists in northern India who depended heavily on local resources for their livelihood. In the early 1970s, the indigenous people started organizing in reaction to the threat of large corporate developers appropriating their resources. The nonviolent environmental movement became the Chipko movement. So one day, officials lured the men of the village away and sent laborers to cut down thousands of trees. But Devi and a group of 22 women and girls surrounded the trees. And in the face of violent threats and screams, the women persevered and eventually saved the trees and chased the loggers away. That's Today in Women's History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. Just another headline that uh, warrants attention. The U.S. accused China of a state-run social media campaign and boycott against companies that refuse to use cotton from the Xinjiang region over concern that the crop is produced with forced labor by Muslim minority Uyghurs. Another developing uh, story. Much more coming up next. My thanks to our executive producer, Christine Barada, our producer, Matthew Shirley, the all-star policy team. Matthew Shirley's doing a, a wave in the studio. Our, the all-star policy team, Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.